Hello and welcome back to The Black Space. My name is Lexi. And my name is McKean. And today we're going to be talking about health disparities. So McKean, do you want to give a little background about your major and maybe some things you're working on right now? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I am a health and human sciences major, African American studies minor, and I'm pre-med, so I'm you know trying to be on that doctor route. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, just saying that out loud. Oh, we're about to graduate. That's besides the point. Anyways, so yeah, health and human sciences. I really want to be a family practice physician. Uh, some of the things that I've been involved with in terms of health disparities work. Um, a couple summers ago, I was a community health intern at a local nonprofit uh, out in Inglewood. Um, I've also done research in terms of looking at health disparities within uh, people who have uh, previously had cancer um, at my university. And just in general, I do a lot of volunteer and service work, currently working on the health project right now. Um, And hopefully, praying, praying, praying that in the spring of this year that we could put on a community health fair as a part of the project. So, yeah. Very good. Now, (laughs) for those uh, who don't know what a health disparity is, do you want to give like a standard definition? Yeah, yeah. Um, As far as standard i'm not going to be pulling any references from like cdc or nothing like that but a health disparity essentially is when you're looking at any type of gap in health outcomes for certain populations so like if you're looking at um just in general we're going to be talking about race right if you're looking at african american i'm sorry if you're looking at a black population versus a white population health outcomes end up different and Mm -hmm. i mean we're going to be diving into why those outcomes are different i'm sure some of y'all could already you know take a couple of good yeah. guesses but um yeah so that's essentially what a health disparity is it's just talking about the gaps and the inequity um between health outcomes for people yeah this is probably going to be a mckean heavy podcast because he's more educated <laughs> um in regards to health disparities in the medical field i'm gonna kind of touch on psychology in the subject pool and disorders but I mean, but it's definitely interrelated. Yeah, it is. It's definitely interrelated. If you're just even thinking about mental... I mean, we're definitely going to bring it back to mental health. Because mm-hmm. if you're even just thinking about mental health, people's mental health manifests itself, like, physiologically. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? That is very true. Like, it manifests, you know, mm-hmm. in the body, whether it be heart problems, whether it be, um, you know, aches, pains, you know? Mm-hmm. So, it's all connected. Like, so, you know, I won't, I won't try and... <laughs> no, <laughs> please, educate all of us. We all need to know. All right, for sure. Okay, so... How exactly do health disparities happen? Well, oof, that is a long history, but we're just talking yeah. about... Short, keep it short. Keep it short, <laughs> keep it simple. Okay, and we're going to do a crash course history on health disparities. It's kind of like, just, just think about in terms of United States and his, its history in terms of uh, oppression, segregation, um, just the inherent inequalities that... Are embedded within, like you know, United States fabric that mm-hmm. manifests into individuals getting different outcomes as well. Um, so, if we're going to be talking kind of like in a sociological sense, um, one aspect of health disparities that's definitely like a really big problem is just in terms of like looking at the care that practitioners give to people who are of different ethnic backgrounds, mm-hmm. different racial backgrounds, um, whether they be uh, immigrants or whether they be um, uh, those of you know the queer community so like trans you know trans women and trans folk um so th- just thinking about sociologically like racial bias that definitely like plays into it yeah. yeah um 
Do you want to talk about how health disparities can affect overall treatment? Yeah, it's like, it's really crazy because it's so impactful. Usually when we're thinking about bias, we're thinking about it in terms of like a job, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, oh, okay, so this means that you're going to be cut off from this opportunity. Well, in this case, you're getting cut off from the care that like you need. Um, so like, for example... Um, physicians, and this has definitely been circulating around, like, on Twitter and social media a lot, but, you know, in terms of, like, Serena Williams' story. Mm-hmm. And you have this, you know, one of the world's most renowned athletes, most successful athletes of all time, um, this incredible public figure, um, and, you know, she had a child uh, sometime last year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so after the birth, she wasn't feeling well. Um, she said something felt off, like she was feeling foggy in her mind and you know very heavy. And it ended up turning out um, that she had an embolism. Um, so that's kind of like a like a pocket of air mm-hmm. um, that circulates in her system. I don't remember if it was. Um, I think it was a. Um, I don't remember which part of her body it was in, but essentially it's like you had this little pocket of air that comes from when you disrupt something, whether it be through surgery or whether it just be like your body is just going at a certain rate and all of a sudden it pops up. It can be pretty random. But because of the surgery, um, well, because of the childbirth, um, that embolism ended up popping up. And when she was telling people that she wasn't feeling well, like they were completely discounting her. They're like, oh, well, I'm not sure if, you know, you really need these tests. I, I'm sure it's just that you're feeling the after effects of the pregnancy or yeah. here, just take this pill and feel better. So she demanded, you know, the MRIs, Um, you know the CAT scans to be able to see what was going on Mm -hmm. and if she hadn't done so then we could have lost one of the greatest athletes that we've ever seen Um, so that's just like a really like well-known example in terms of how implicit bias uh, how uh, racism prejudice can deter outcomes yeah implicit bias is a very big factor in regards of health disparities um regard to Serena Williams she actually had the money to demand all, all these the tests, money. yeah, all the, all the money. money, yeah, all the money she had, <laughs> all the money, all the clout, and they still <laughs> doubted her. Like that is so crazy to me, just thinking about that. Like, yeah, one of um, the hot topics in the field of research, at least in psychology, is um, white clinicians' inability to recognize pain in black patients. Mm, yeah. That's something that's being studied a lot because a lot of the times where underprescribed oh definitely yeah yeah pain pills yeah um there was this really great book it's uh by this physician from stanford dr donald barr and it was um it's like united states health disparities or something like that it came out i think about like 10 years ago but even if you're thinking about the trends seen back then and the associations back then Mm -hmm. it's still like very apparent and he talked about that a lot in his book basically they think if you're a minority you're some sort of like superhero you know what i'm saying yeah like like you know apparently we're bulletproof even though these bullets be going through so it's like yeah it goes back to the whole resilient stereotype that i talked about in my last podcast especially with black women. yeah it's abhorrent with black women like mm-hmm. completely just trash yeah um so that's a that's a really good point you know it's like um they prescribe less pain medication uh and then typically in terms of the types of medication that you give so you have like you know the real strong medication you know kind of like a oh this is a really simple one but basically it's like you're going from you know type a you know the best cream of the crop to giving someone like Tylenol yeah after a surgery (laughs) that's that's That's, actually uh, yeah (laughs) that's not okay (laughs) that is absolutely not okay so I that is definitely like an important 
issue um, that's still prevalent in the medical field today. Yeah. yeah, I mean, one thing we talked about off mic um, was how a lot of these medications, health standards, even um, mental health standards, diseases, treatments are based off the white standard. Mm. And a lot of these findings are being universalized to populations that they can't be applied to. Yeah, I mean, if we're just even talking about like kind of like this idea of like race in terms of being a, a um, comparative, like a comparing tool between like different, um, those of different heritage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, race itself is a social construct. Um, and even if you compare within like those who are black, but let's say you're comparing someone who's uh, African-American versus someone who's Caribbean, right? Mm-hmm. Or you're comparing someone who's African-American to someone who's Nigerian. Typically, like first-generation immigrants, when they come to the United States, even though further generations down, that you start seeing some health problems manifest. Typically, in terms of cardiovascular health, uh, their outcomes are much higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, that includes life outcome. That includes prevalence of disease, or like how often does heart disease show up in, um, you know, those who are African immigrants versus those who are African American. So when we're talking about all these white white standards, we barely even have like enough like diversity of research within our own populations Mm -hmm. and so for the longest time you've had um you know these like especially in terms of like college studies you know Mm -hmm. a lot of studies that are like health studies that are based on college populations you know it's just like like young white dudes like yeah (laughs) like 20 21 22 year old white dudes it does not it does not match up with you know someone who's a young latina it does not match Mm -hmm. up with someone who is um you know african american doesn't match up with someone who's asian american like it just doesn't pair up just because of the lived experience and um even things that are inheritably you know inheritable differences mm-hmm. yeah so it's, it's that's another aspect that's trash i have a lot of <laughs> <laughs> i got a lot of things that uh, i think are kind of trash about healthcare but i still love it though so yeah i still love it in regard to psychology i think it was like a little bit over 80 percent of um, psychological findings are based off of undergraduate subject pools Mm -hmm. and then in the u.s it's like 60 percent of our findings are from undergraduate subject pools and now there's this call for diversity science within the field Mm -hmm. which is like understanding how race and socioeconomic status plays a role in the creation of like institutions and practices and um and that's big. Yeah. That's super big. Because um, it's like um, the National Institute of Health, for example. I was talking to a professor about this recently. And in terms of like diversifying the research pool, you mm-hmm. actually have these like big like federal institutions focusing on giving grant money. Like, you know, focusing on like giving like money, money <laughs> yeah. to researchers who are trying to find the differences within the populations, you know, because America is just realizing that, oh, we have a lot of... We got a lot of people here that aren't just, you know, white, hetero, you know, males. And it makes sense to an extent that at first, like, the research pool was strictly coming from, like, college populations just because it was, like, easy. Mm-hmm. You know, it was feasible. Um, but in terms of, like, methodologies or, like, ways of, like, doing studies and whatnot, it's, you know, it's they're finding more ways to get out to more people. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important. And in regards to implicit bias in um, health disparities... The demographics of America are going to change. Definitely. 100, yes. 110%. It's, it's not going to be the white majority anymore. 
they're gonna be the minority. Yes. Or even though they already feel like the minority mm-hmm. now, they're gonna be really filling in by like what was it, twenty thirty? I think. Yeah, I think. Well, I'm looking at something right now, and it says like compared to, from two thousand sixteen, it's projected that, or compared from two thousand sixteen to two thousand fifty, the percentage of people of color in the United States is gonna increase from forty percent to. 54%. Shout out to my people of color, man. That's what I'm <laughs> talking about. I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, and it's funny because it's like, it definitely instills like a lot of fear in white people um, just because of... <laughs> 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 like, like, they would be looking at that stand and be like, oh, like, you know, it's, I mean, just because of the racialized history, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of uncertainty there. Um, but then you have a lot of allies too who are looking forward to kind of like the um, mixing of cultures in terms yeah. of like being able to reach out and kind of like quell um, some of this uh, you know racial tension racial hatred prejudice mm-hmm. it's gonna take a cool minute it's definitely not gonna happen like the next 10 years take a maybe not the next 20 hopefully within my lifetime probably not but. I mean we're <laughs> I mean we're gonna get to like 90 you know? <laughs> 90 we'll yeah. be okay by 90 yeah we'll be straight by 90 okay do you want to talk about socioeconomic status? Yeah, definitely. Um, so one thing that I learned while I was working at um, the nonprofit as a community health intern was that when you have a lot of um, community-based orgs or uh, you have you know researchers, um, what a lot of people like to do when they're trying to find like you know certain trends or associations is you're pairing it up with something. Um, like you're bringing up comparisons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're trying to find relationships between you know certain factors or variables. Um, one of the most important variables in terms of looking at specific health outcomes is socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. And if we're not even talking about like all the sciencey things, like just common sense, like you know, okay, if I'm making a certain amount of money that's considered under um, or at the poverty line, right? Uh, I'm already you know, with less money to be able to go to the doctor. I may or may not be insured. Um, I'm probably not insured. Um, I can't go to a good doctor in terms of, like, this pain I've been feeling in my chest. I want to go, but my kids need to eat. I need to keep working. And my job is usually 8 to 10 hours a day. So by the time I get home, all I'm thinking about is I just want to rest. I just want to eat something that's good. I want to chill, mm-hmm. kick it with my family for a little bit, maybe watch a little bit of TV. And then the sedentary cycle repeats. So, so can, when you have kind of like certain jobs that don't give you the ability to be able to, to take time for exercise or the ability to be able to afford good doctors, or maybe there's not even a lot of doctors in your area, right? Um, that in of itself is a big, big factor, just looking at that association. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, minorities contribute to, like, a large part of the lower economic status in <laughs> the United States. Sounds familiar, yeah. <laughs> I think it was, like, for every $1 a white person makes, it's, like, 70 cents for a black person. Yeah, it sounds real familiar. <laughs> <laughs> now, some solutions that were created to uh, counteract this was the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm, now, yeah. I'm not that educated about it. Okay. You want to try? <laughs> uh, crash course ACA, but shout out to Obamacare. Uh, <laughs> when it comes to the Affordable Care Act, it was just like really interesting piece of legislation. So back in the good old days, 
<laughs> Pre-Trump era. <laughs> Pre-Trump era. Um, back in the good old days, um, there was this very large contention in terms of like how our healthcare system should be run. So if we're just talking about systems um, in the United States, the way it kind of works is like you have three main ways that people get their healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. So there's um, Medicaid, which is the um, government standardized program um, that gives healthcare to those who can't afford, you know, uh, private healthcare. And there's private healthcare, um, which is either through your job or you're paying uh, premiums or like a certain amount a month out of pocket, you know, with a certain company, in turn, a certain health insurance company. And then the third one is uh, Medicare. And so after, this is for like the retirement population. So like after you hit 65, you're done with work and you know, you're just like, okay, let me just, I'm just gonna kick it. Uh, the government immediately um, gives you healthcare um, and they take a certain amount out of your paycheck that goes along with like your retirement fund. Some of it goes to like your healthcare, some of it goes to like your IRA, blah, 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 401k, all that stuff I still am trying to learn about. But <laughs> those are like the three main ways, right? Mm-hmm. So um, because that was the main focus, um, I mean, because that was the main setup, private insurance was kind of like the main focus because America is a capitalist society. The whole idea of private insurance is driven off of making profits and, mm-hmm. um, you know, creating competition. But if you only have a couple of companies who you could go to and they're all monopolizing, eating up the smaller companies, then they aren't going to be that competitive with each other because it's like, okay, I got like four choices. <laughs> like five unless I get it through my job yeah so they were just always like raising up prices raising up prices so you had a during the time it was like over 50 million people who were uninsured and that's crazy mm-hmm. like it was 10-15% of the population uninsured at one time so um, that in of itself means that people are suffering because you know even though the care even though care is um, there's a gap in care any care is better than no care. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the ACA was a piece of legislation that was meant to kind of like mimic universal health care um, while still keeping the framework of um, the three model system, right? So it was for those who were low income um, to get them signed on it, uh, Medicare, and make it mandatory. Mm-hmm. So that way, if you have a whole bunch of people pulling the, putting into the pool, um, the overall cost gets lower. Um, so the government helps like subsidize or give... Um, you know, uh, basically they share the cost with you. So they're giving you money to be able to buy healthcare um, just so that everybody has it. And that's really cool because, again, any healthcare is better than no yes, healthcare. Yes, that is very true. Yeah, a big part of, in my opinion, why it didn't really work was because states still had the rights on whether or not they wanted to implement that system. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had a lot of states that were red states that were just trying to spite um, President Obama. So it got tons of people insurance um but it didn't get everybody and so that's kind of like the aca in a crash course type setting the more you know the more you know (laughs) y'all see the rainbow (laughs) (laughs) now um in regard to these lower economic communities Mm -hmm. there's a lot of environmental factors yeah that also contribute Mm -hmm. to a decline in their health so Mm -hmm. there's like toxins pollution um, in regards to mental health, there's a lot of um, undiagnosed PTSD because of violence, drug use. Yeah, and this has been persisting for like 
a long time um specifically like because of like redlining mm-hmm. uh, you know so it's like um when you have this you know um heavy segregation leading all the way to the 60s and then this de facto segregation or kind of like segregation at you know because or as is right because of you know banks trying to be like oh you know these are red areas we wouldn't advise you investing or buying homes in these areas or we won't give loans to black people because you guys aren't necessarily financially stable so we got football teams coming into (laughs) historically black neighborhoods um but we're not going to get into that oh no oh yeah Oof. <laughs> oh, you made a lot of people mad. Okay. Um, but I feel you on that. Um, that's definitely an issue as well. But if we're, just, if we're talking about, um, like, environmental health, mm-hmm. um, when you have, you know, institutions that aren't investing in these communities and you have these communities who are, um, you, know, you know, filled with, like, hardworking people and people trying to, you know, make ends meet for their families. And um, you also have, because of redlining, um, a uh, an interesting dynamic in terms of like construction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so because these communities don't have like a lot of social capital or like a lot of influence, um, you have construction companies and cities themselves, especially during the '70s, building like freeways, or um, you know like uh, shipping companies, you know, setting up shop in certain communities, um, even pollution sites. So the environmental toxicity when it comes to things like lead or air pollutants um particulate matter you know things Mm -hmm. coming from like chimney pipes and you know from manufacturing or gas from transportation that impacts your health directly physically right Mm -hmm. um you have a lot of kids you know living out in the hood who have asthma i have asthma i (laughs) and everyone in my family has asthma and they all grew up around you know, Coliseum, um, and, you know, Baldwin, you know, like Crenshaw area. Um, you have a lot of people who live in like Southgate, um, and South Bay who also have like, you know, these issues, mm-hmm. even if we're talking about mental health. Um, I went to a conference last semester and, um, we had some researchers who were coming from Baltimore and they were talking about, um, the toxicity levels of lead. And it was crazy because I saw this when I was working with like a doctor uh, who focuses who focuses on toxicity levels as well? So the increased level of lead, mm-hmm. lead was found to be associated with autism. Oh wow! Yeah, and ADHD. So already you have the physical impact and the mental mm-hmm. from the jump. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that. That's crazy, and no one's really talking about it. No one's really addressing it. Um, and when they do, you know, the city doesn't respond. Yeah, in regards to, um, you know, traumatic events, toxins, exposure to, like, harmful things at a young age, those are all factors that contribute to different mental illnesses, like depression and PTSD. But my issue with the research Mm. is that they all say we're resilient (laughs) to all these problems. Yeah, color people don't feel pain. What? People of color don't feel pain. We're fine. (laughs) We're absolutely fine. It just perpetuates the negative stigmas associated with seeking treatment. Yeah. So you have these people that are suffering, not knowing why they're suffering, but doing so in silence. It's fr- it's so frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, and you know you're right. Like if you're thinking about violence in the community, uh, you know, 
violence isn't a thing of oh you know you know this group is just inherently more violent no it's an issue with resources you know some people are driven to the point where they don't have anything and they need to get something just to survive you know what i'm saying and so unfortunately that manifests itself into um violence um and again this is across communities but you see it in urban communities um especially so when we're talking about like post-traumatic stress uh you usually think of it in terms of like oh you know you went to go fight in iraq yeah. come back you're you know you're messed up you're twisted mm-hmm. no you have a lot of these kids growing up with ptsd because i was talking with one student at a high school i volunteer at and he was talking about uh something crazy that happened to him he lived in south la he lives in south la and there was one night where um a bullet came through his window while he was asleep and you know he wakes up and he thinks he heard broken glass but he's like oh no i couldn't have been and his mom comes running into his room screaming are you okay are you okay that's traumatic yeah and then when you're talking about having a mental health illness um whether or not it's diagnosed um it keeps you from being socially capable um you know it manifests in anxiety it can manifest itself in depressive symptoms um it can manifest itself in anger and frustration. Uh, so uh, that's a whole nother, it, like violence is a public health issue. Mm-hmm. Like real talk, it's a, it's a public health issue. And it's a public health issue because of the mental health influence it has on people. And in regards to quality of, of care compared to these urban communities as to if you go out to like, I don't know, let's say Beverly Hills, Mm. the quality of treatment you're getting is very different yeah because my experience at an inglewood urgent care Uh versus a beverly hills urgent care very different oh that's unfortunate very different (laughs) that's unfortunate it's not so the doc no (laughs) (laughs) i would say the doctor was trash they didn't have this that they didn't have it's just it's it's overcrowded so you have you know stressed out Nurses that have probably been there all day working shifts. Okay. Um, they lost my results. <laughs> so I had to go back. Okay, <laughs> that's okay. That's not, that's not the business either. Oh, uh, I guess in, t- <laughs> in terms of, I would say that some of the best practitioners are in underserved communities, mm-hmm. um, because they see the most people that they have. The, the most like, experience. The most experience. Especially with our community. Especially with our community. Yeah. They're trusted within our communities, especially when you're talking about people of color who are practitioners, whether it be nurses, uh, EMTs, doctors, um, you know, lab researchers, medical assistants. Um, they are, the I would say, some of the most capable people in healthcare. Um, but you kind of mentioned it in terms of like the overcrowding, right? Mm-hmm. So even though they themselves are capable, um, you find that there is a scarcity of um, healthcare facilities in underserved communities. Mm-hmm. And again, that goes back to the US being racist as hell, it goes back to the <laughs> invisible red lines. Like, it's, you know, it's, um, it's still prevalent today. So, and, you know, you go over to like, you know, West LA, Beverly Hills, and, you know, they have like this really nice facility, and it's a couple stories tall, and there's an in house lab that's really great. So, you don't have to go to like a, you know, uh, you know, go somewhere else, get your drug yeah. on for a phlebotomist or anything like that. Um, but 
I would say that you find some of uh, you find some really great practitioners but another thing and this goes to mental health as well especially in the medical field you find a lot of burnout just tons of mental exhaustion mm -hmm. so just being at work for so long for so many people and always having to find a way to increase the type of care that you give um, with you know lack of resources it wears down on you um, so it, you have some people who do it like splendidly but we're human so at some point there does come a time where it's like okay i don't know if i can handle this um so I, i'm sorry about your experience at the <laughs> the inglewood clinic but it's okay I, but I can i can understand but I, I can definitely understand i can definitely relate even um when i was working as a medical assistant i was working in culver city and that doctor who was working with like kind of like an upper middle class population mm -hmm. that doctor was also experiencing burnout um, just from seeing so many people being a good physician, you mm -hmm. know, being referred to by a whole bunch of people. So it's kind of like the nature of the field. Now, in regards to quality care and um, mental health care, I know I've been talking to a lot of people about, like, their therapy experience, and I've been talking to people from different, um, different cities around California. And a lot of their complaints were that there's not that many therapists that they feel comfortable seeing around them if there are therapists in their neighborhood yeah. or um, there are no therapists at all and their only option is church. Mm. But that's a whole different podcast. <laughs> one day. Oh, one day. That's a couple episodes. Yeah. That's like two or three. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, it's difficult because... When it comes to mental health practitioners, um, again, you find a lot of the same problems in underserved communities as those who are practitioners for um, medical health care. Um, and I would say that it is getting better in some sense, but it really is dependent on the individual. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're trying to find um, a person of color for your practitioner, um, you might end up finding them in a neighborhood that's far out from your own, um, which makes it difficult to kind of incorporate that into your life. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so yeah, the health disparities, they exist in terms of the care that's given, um, they exist in terms of outcome, but they also exist in terms of like what's available, yeah. like what can I get access to, that type of thing. Then I had the opportunity to sit in on your mental health workshop. Yes, you did. With the high, local high school students <laughs> of the school that cannot be named. Uh, the school that cannot but, be named. <laughs> but I think that's a good start in regards to not necessarily solving, but bringing to light mental illness to communities that don't necessarily talk about it. Yeah. I, it's very I stigmatized. That. Yeah. yeah. I, and I appreciate that. Um, I think the stigma within the last I would say six or seven years has definitely improved mm -hmm. um, even some of the students that we were talking to were um, they were talking about how they had family members uh, who were um, who they had seen go through like depression mm -hmm. and that they were able to talk about it within their family now it doesn't make it you know uh, it doesn't fix the problem but it makes it easier because a big part of any sort of mental you know anyone's been experiencing bad mental health is being able to communicate that 
with someone to help find solutions and get, you know not suppress it um but it still is stigmatized like let's not get it twisted like <laughs> it's still very stigmatized um amongst different people of color but in terms of like the work that we're trying to do um and hopefully expand upon going to some classrooms not even just do it after school but it's it's not we aren't the solution mm-hmm. but we're trying to equip them with more tools than when they started yeah um and of course in terms of like culturally speaking that says a lot in terms of like oh this is really like bringing down the stigma Mm -hmm. um and so by giving them the tools to understand and recognize what like certain disorders are or what mental health is you know just defined or coping mechanisms uh it helps them in terms of their journey um to be successful um and so it's not necessarily a solution, but I think it could be like a interesting framework in terms of like, okay, you have these college students getting this education, mm-hmm. learning about you know psychology and learning about coping mechanisms and learning about you know uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. What are some ways that you could share that with the younger population, get them and encourage them to even want to become mental health care professionals? So yeah, one thing I also liked is some of the mentors um, shared their experiences. Mm-hmm in regards to mental health and seeking treatment. And I think, at least in their eyes, they see someone like them that felt bad, sought out help, and boom. Boom. We're in college. <laughs> we, we made it. We still made it, yeah. We're still making it. We're still making but, it. But I'll, we made it, you know? I will have definitely made it once I get that degree. But, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's really... And I, Kudos to them because that takes a level of vulnerability. Yeah. But what you find, especially in having conversations like these and facilitating conversations like these, mm-hmm. is if you're in a mentorship position and you're able to show a level of vulnerability, um, a lot of the times the students reciprocate that, which is like really important. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, like what you mentioned, they feel less alone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the, on the black space, we have these things called the black sessions where I have um, different black individuals come in and talk about their experience with therapy, whether it be good or bad. But I think just getting these stories out there, kind of normalizing it, not making it so taboo, kind of helps people mm-hmm. see like, oh, it's not so bad to go to therapy. Or yeah, it may have been bad for them, but they still tried. Yeah, and it directly like impacts their well-being. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is so important because you have to keep trying. Yeah. Even if the first therapist that you go to wasn't the one for you you have to keep trying because it that's directly linked to your physical like yes, your mental is. health is directly linked to your physical health i'll say it again yeah. <laughs> one more time for the people in the back your <laughs> mental health is directly connected to your physical health like this last semester i was taking this class i was like really great because the professor um it was a pure health education class mm-hmm. so how to like run workshops and talk about certain issues within healthcare with certain populations, right? You know, there's a method to madness theory where it's sociological, mm-hmm. and then of course, like how do you convey these like really like nitty gritty like concepts to like you know your average layman, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the class was specifically um, focused on looking at it through a lens of uh, mental health and stress. Um, so when you're talking about stress. Um, like, you know, just think about it when you're feeling stress, you know, what's happening with your body, right? Your heart rate, ba boom, ba boom, ba boom, is like skyrocketing, your blood pressure goes up. And if you're constantly stressed and your blood pressure is constantly high, your heart is constantly, 
you know, just pulsating and contracting super, super hard, you know, just squeezing as much blood as it can, that does damage. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like a thinking about like an engine and if you're constantly like pressing on the gas pedal and, you know, you're going 140 miles per hour, you know, that engine, and you're not giving any oil to your engine, the engine's going to burn out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you start finding that people have like damage in their vasculature or like their blood vessels, um, you know, their heart uh, ends up becoming like super like big and enlarged. Um, which is like really like bad yeah <laughs> like you don't want like a like people when people are like you have such a big heart you like you don't actually like <laughs> want a big heart no. <laughs> you just want a strong heart you just want a strong heart because uh, it's called hypertrophy when it starts enlarging mm-hmm. and that decreases your heart's ability um to be able to pump blood effectively through your body um and then you have like um plaque buildup from all the damage that's going on in your vessels and that could lead to, uh, you know, a whole host of cardiovascular disease, right? And that's all just coming from stress. Yeah. Like, stress can lead to that. And it does stuff to your stomach, like, your gastrointestinal system. It does stuff to, like, stress impacts your memory, impacts your sleep, which is important to, you know, all of your system's health. Your immune system is depressed if you're dealing with chronic stress. And chronic stress is strongly associated with a lot of mental health disorders, mm-hmm. right? And so, again... For the people in the back who did not hear me, <laughs> who just happened to not be listening, your mental health is directly <laughs> impacting your physical health. Very true. Period. Now, some solutions outside the Affordable Care Act. Some of the research articles I read mm-hmm. said that as a clinician, <laughs> if, if you or someone around you uh-huh. points out that implicit bias exists, because, you know, sometimes you don't know. It's implicit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it can help you in your practice as far as reducing your... Um, like your, uh, re- your prejudice? Yeah. Okay. So it's like, just to be clear, like this person is saying... Okay. This exists. You might You're be acting re- like that. <laughs> so it's like, hey, Bob. So I, I know that you just had, um, you know, that patient come in. And I noticed that she was black. And I noticed that when you look at black people, you get this weird look in your eyes. And there's a little bit of, this, and you, your lip starts you know, curling up a little bit. I think you're a little bit racist. Um, so take that as you may. But you definitely didn't give her the medication you're supposed to give her. Da 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 da. Okay, you're racist, Bob. You ruined her experience. You ruined her experience. And probably her health. And well, her health. Her health. Not okay. probably you did. You ruin did. Her health. Okay, congratulations, Bob. Thanks, Bob. So this researcher is saying, okay, as long as I do that, it's all like yeah. PG Keen. It was a. Uh, actually, I'm not gonna say because I'm not trying to get sued. <laughs> um, yeah, his uh, he did this whole like wonderful meta study about like implicit bias mm. and black and white. Um, clinicians and patients and you know he was going in there talking about socioeconomic status talking about even if you level the playing fields when you have a white clinician black patients are so mistreated and have a poor um, experience okay so this sounds and he just ended it with but like (laughs) if you talk about it it might go away so or go outside the healthcare system to correct it but that's (laughs) <laughs> but okay with the context that you gave it sounds like a really like well done research study right yeah and it sounds really important because it goes back to this like you know this concept we're talking about implicit bias leads mm-hmm. to poor health outcomes 
white clinicians with black patients, mm-hmm. you find disparate care. That's really, really great. And it's, if it's a meta-analysis, then it's definitely scientifically sound because, like, for those of you who don't know, when you do a meta-analysis, you're basically, like, taking, like... Other research. You're taking yeah. as many pieces of research on the topic that you're trying to get and you just, like, run, like, a statistics, like, wash mm-hmm. over, like, everything. Um, so they're statistically strong, meaning that it compares, like, a lot of the research that's out there. So that's all great. Mm-hmm. As far as... Uh, the discussion. Yeah, which is what solution is um, put in. Let's see. <laughs> first things first. It's. <laughs> Let me. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, like, it's not bad. I'm not. I'll, I'll put it like this. It's not bad, right? So it's like kind of like accountability. Mm-hmm. So, challenging practitioners to take note of the behaviors of their colleagues mm-hmm. and call it out, right? that's important that is i think a part probably like a couple percent of like part of the solution or it goes back to the school system (laughs) it goes back to the school school system and the history that's taught yeah and it goes back to the institution yeah because you need to if you're looking for any sort of long-term change there needs to be a change with the institution Mm -hmm. um so if you're recognizing that there's disparate care between the providers in your hospital or um you know to people of color there needs to be training implemented amongst all current practicing practitioners mm-hmm. for them to understand their implicit behaviors and how to rectify or be mindful in order to be better practitioners that's an institutional change mm-hmm. another institutional change is um, or a more large-scale changes, you know, of course, getting more people of color into the professions, giving them the avenues um, to be able to not only get exposed to health professions, but to become health professionals mm-hmm. um, so that they themselves can work with communities that they're familiar with. Um, and then, I mean, because you can't just be like, hey, bro. You're, <laughs> you're racist. You're racist. Um. Like, <laughs> like, cut it out. Because there's <laughs> denial. There's yeah. denial. Like, it's implicit. And there, n- nothing worse for a white person than being called a racist. Like, yeah, like, like it's like it's like their like red herring moment. It's like it's like you just came out here and called them like you know like <laughs> like the N word or something like that. Like, no, you're just behaving in a way that is prejudiced against people, whether it was conscious or not. And so it's like there needs to be like a bigger change than just like that. That's like a percentage of like that's like what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just good accountability practice, HR type stuff. <laughs> like, there's, there needs to be so much more done. Yeah, this implicit bias goes beyond the doctor-patient relationship. Like, we were talking about, was it disruptive, disruptive disorder? Yeah, we were. In yeah. Um, schools. Right. And how school psychologists in some areas are legally allowed to medicate children. Mm-hmm. And these medications have health effects later on in their life. And then also in regards to insurance, once you have a mental illness, it's on there on your record. It's yeah. if you want to go into therapy or become a doctor, and somehow you get sued for malpractice, that can be subpoenaed in. Mm. You'd be like, "Whoa, this person was yeah. diagnosed with this, so they were it's more so liable." Stigmatized, and as far as getting like life insurance, yeah, premium skyrockets. Premium skyrockets. So it's. You definitely like it's a the cultural aspect of it is so important. Um, 
and that's you find that again things are moving slowly but things are changing mm-hmm. um like there are um, a lot of like medical programs out there at different schools that are focused on serving underserved populations and serving um you know diverse populations yeah and you find a lot of people of color who are looking to be doctors or looking to be nurses electing to go into these programs mm-hmm. to be those healthcare leaders that help facilitate that change um but if you're talking about like in you know schools and you have this idea like if you know in terms of like oh you know little rakim is just like a like a hella bad kid you know mm-hmm. he's just acting up i can't stand him you know it's like i got it he's got something wrong with his mental right give him this pill give him this pill he'll calm down but it's definitely because of this disorder when little billy is acting up and billy is like <laughs> he's oh, Bill, billy's fine you know he's just going through growing changes it's a tough you it's puberty, know, it's hormones. It's, and probably something going on at home. Mm-hmm. Is that it? You know, I'm definitely being hyperbolic, but you know you know exactly what I'm saying. It's you need people need to be mindful of this. Yeah. People definitely need to be mindful of this. And that that cultural competency piece is going to be a huge part in up improving a lot of healthcare outcomes for a lot of people who need it. Yeah, that's what I think too, but another follow up question is how do these programs look? Ooh. What exactly is cultural competency? What is cultural competency? There's some websites, there's some companies <laughs> that lay it out for you, but... Let's see. I mean, a big part is... Re- going back to that one research you were talking about, a big part of it is recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, so incorporating um, those who are um, practitioners in human relations or in a cultural facilitation um, and having them be able to break things down um, and having that be like a mandatory training, Right. And then, in terms of what it looks like, it could really vary. I know that some universities, they have, like, certain orgs come in, and, you know, they have, like, these um, videos of students um, who are students of color, and um, them talking about their experiences in terms of microaggressions, or Mm -hmm. when a professor said this or that, and for all that professor knows, that could have been, like, a student that they had, or something that they said that they would have known, had no idea. Yeah that would have impacted these students um so in terms of like education that's kind of like one of the things that you could look at um but and other than that i don't know i'm still learning me too yeah okay i think that concludes our (laughs) discussion on health disparities thank you very much for coming yeah of course i appreciate it i love talking about this stuff i hope you all enjoyed this episode Thank you for tuning into the Black Space Podcast and remember to stay liberated.